You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello, my name's David Frizzell, and this episode of the Team Guru Podcast is another in a series that I've done in conjunction with Wimmark, or Women in Mining and Resources Queensland, is a group that works to support and promote women across all areas of the primary resources industry. I'm proud to have been associated with them for a little while now. In episode 76, I spoke with Tim Crossley, former Chief Operating Officer of BHP, live from a Wimmark event. And back in episode 57, I spoke with Jenny Purdy, a long-time Wimmark member who is currently the CEO of Adani's Renewables Operation in Australia. And in this episode, I speak with the 2018 winner of Wimmark's Exceptional Women in Mining Award, Joanne Dudley. Joanne has been working in the resource sector for 25 years, and like so many, she began her career as a mining engineer. Joanne has worked in FIFO roles. She spent years of her life underground. She's been the only woman working on site. She survived not one, but two near fatal workplace accidents. And the list goes on in what has been a colorful and energetic career. Joanne shares with me some of the stories that have given her career that color. And she reflects thoughtfully on the role of women in the mining industry, her experiences as a trailblazer, and the revolution of the safety culture. She also talks about the powerful role that mentoring can play in the lives and careers of the next generation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Joanne Dudley. Joanne Dudley, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you very much. Joanne, you are the Wimmark Exceptional Woman in Mining for 2018. Congratulations for a start, but uh, tell us about that. What what does it mean to you to be recognised by your peers in your industry and what does that award suggest? What does it symbolise? Well, it's a great question actually because I was convinced to apply by a close friend and colleague And at the time I thought, well, you know, it's a bit of a brag really to try and put yourself forward for an award like this. But since I've been, since I won the award, I've found it's a great vehicle for whatever cause I would like to raise. And of course, that cause is trying to get more women into the mining industry and into STEM careers. And so I've been able to use that as a bit of an intro and a license to operate, if you like. So I've found it to be, so far, really valuable for me because I am passionate about those things. I've read a few things about you. I've read some speeches that you've delivered, and there's some really strong themes that come out from all of that, that you you clearly are at the point in your career where you've worked out what you're passionate about, what you care about. You've had time to ponder the things that you've experienced and extract what's important and what you want to give back to. And we'll talk about those things, and those things clearly are about women in mining, a bit of gender equality and gender awareness. Uh, You're very passionate about mentoring 
and making sure that we're developing the next generation of leaders, which is what leadership is all about when it comes down to it. And the other thing I get from from reading about you is safety. Is something that you've experienced both sides of. You've had some pretty horrendous experiences when it comes to safety. You've stood up to that ethically, and you are now a voice for safety on Mindsight. So we'll get to all of that. But before we get there, let's just give the listeners a little bit of an idea of the shape your career has taken. You're the classic, started with a very solid technical skill. You're a, a mining engineer. You worked in that for a long time, and then you, now you have progressed through various leadership roles. Take us way back. I think it was 1994 when you graduated from uni. Yes. How's my memory going? See, yeah, I'm not looking work. at notes, am I? Good work. 1994, and um, and you started working in underground mines. I want to hear all about that. I've never set foot in an underground mine. I have spent a lot of time on mine sites, but never gone underground. I suppose they don't take a lot of visiting consultants into the underground space. So I want to hear about what it's really like to work underground. Secondly, I want you to paint for us a picture of the landscape in 1994. I believe you were the first or the second woman in Queensland to be allowed to work underground. Well, certainly I, I was, yeah, so I actually was uh, qualified for a mine manager's ticket as one of the very first in New South Wales. But yes, absolutely. There weren't many women working underground in New South Wales. It was only legal for women to work underground the year I started university, you know, but I had no idea of that. You know, I guess I, I came into university really pretty ignorant about what might face us, the young women who started at that time in terms of gender diversity. And, you know, I'd grown up in a, a family with only brothers and I was treated equally in my family. So it, it didn't really occur to me that the world could be any other way. So you were starting a degree at a time when if things didn't change, you would finish your degree and be really limited as to what you could practice on site because of the current rules. They happened to change, yes, that's but you right. started in that environment. Absolutely. And I guess I guess there were other parts of the environment that go to your question about underground mining and how I ended up in underground mining because, you know, it's very common in engineering degrees to get have to get work experience during your degree. So while I was at university, I worked at an underground magnetite mine, which was a very small mine just up the road here in Bigenden. And it was a wonderful experience. It was more like a family than anything else. And, you know, the men I worked with were really generous with their time. And so they taught me how to operate equipment and really treated me like the younger daughter or sister, you know, and it was a wonderful experience. And then the next period of work was in a large open cup coal mine in the Bowen Basin. And at the time, it was really culturally split between the unions and the non-union. And, you know, there were different coloured hard hats worn. You know, if you're a union, it was one. If you're a staffy, it was another. And, you know, so the whole workforce was divided. And then I went into the next period of work and it was another underground mine and uh, it was up near Mount Isa. And that was a very formative experience. You know, we worked, we were thrown on shift and we were the first women the men had ever worked with, and there was a woman on each shift from university. And we had to do what the men did. And, uh, you know, at first I thought it might break me and, you know, I'd lie in my bunk after work and think, do I want to move and have dinner or should I just go to sleep, you know? Rest my weary body. That's right. But uh, at the end of that time, you know, when it came to making a decision about where I wanted to work, I felt that culturally I'd been treated more fairly and more inclusively in the underground environment 
And so ultimately, I think it was that culture that really made me seek the underground world rather than the surface world. Really? So in some ways, a bit of an accident of where I worked. And so, you know, that was just because I think where I worked didn't have divisions in the workplace. I mean, I gave the example of unions, but it's not necessarily a union that might cause that division, but in that case it was. So I ended up in underground mining and really it was the culture that got me there and kept me there. And I I really feel that there's a closeness at work at the moment. We've got people who haven't got an underground background coming into teams where we have people with underground backgrounds and they talk about there's a barrier to entry. So once, you know, trying to get into that underground, you might call it click, or be respected by the underground experienced people is difficult for them. But I guess what I would say is once you're in, you're in. Is it, you know, miners amongst miners? Do they see themselves as the hardcore of miners, people who work and live underground? Maybe. I, you know, I, I'm not sure that it's, you know, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses with it, that culture, right? You know, I guess maybe it's because if something goes wrong in an underground mine, you only have each other to deal with that and to rely upon. And as a result, you know, you tend to be quite close-knit. Is it because of the extremeness of the, you know, the safety consequences, the, the camaraderie comes from the fact that you're relying on each other Maybe, so and maybe the isolation as well. I'm yeah. sure if you looked at oil and gas rigs that yeah. you would find a similar culture. Where, where they fly, they helicopter in for their, for their shift <laughs> and right. they're stuck there for that's right. 14 or whatever days. That's right. And perhaps also a smaller workforce often as well, mm. you know, than the large open pit mines. So that allows people to develop those close networks. So the culture embraced you. You enjoyed that. You'd had a few experiences early in your career above ground and underground. You chose underground because of the culture. Is there any fear factor about being underground? Is is there anything about that? Or as a non-mining person, is it, you know, am I, do I just not understand that that's not a thing? I think it is a thing. I think I was probably just a bit naive, really, about, I mean, I guess, and I guess as an engineer, you you have this background of knowledge that you bring when you come into a mine. So so now when I go into an underground mine, I pay attention to where's the fresh air coming from? Where's the return air going to? If there's a disaster, even if I'm visiting a mine, I know where is the kind of place I would be going to. I take notice of where are the refuges, where is the safety equipment, those kinds of things. And I think you have that level of knowledge. And so for me going into an underground mine, no, I'm generally not not worried. There are some situations that I know are more dangerous than others. For example, like shaft sinking. You know, so if I'm going to visit something like that, I'm paying a lot of attention to safety systems and do I have, can I develop my own confidence in what's happening here? So even as a visitor, you know, I think you you do develop a way of dealing with what danger there might be. Now, can I also say that in open pit mines, there is also lots of opportunities for people to get hurt. And, you know, the vehicle interactions uh, with people and other vehicles are our biggest safety or causes of safety incidents in both mines. And so those dangers still absolutely exist, you know. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. When I think about underground mining, I can't work out if it seems or feels more dangerous than working at heights or or not. 
But I guess as an engineer, you would have this thorough understanding of what's gone into developing that underground mine and and your trust would be in the science and the, the knowledge that you have from your discipline where someone like me would just see this awfully deep hole that at any time could crumble around me and I might be stuck here. All right, we'll get off the underground <laughs> intrigue. I think that's mine alone. Now, you, you mentioned there safety. We've talked about safety as one of the themes that's come through your career I've read that you you had a number of or a couple of standout ugly incidents that happened early in your career. And to put that in perspective, even I understand that between 1994 and 2018, there has been a huge revolution in the safety culture in, in all mining companies, let alone the one that you work for and the, the others that you've worked for. Tell us about some of those safety incidents that you experienced early on and also touch on on how you see the the changing culture that you've lived through. Absolutely. And, you know, there has been a revolution in safety and what we expect as a society. You know, it used to be accepted people might be get, getting hurt at work or even killed at work, whereas I think now, you know, quite rightly, society has an expectation that you go to work and you come home in the same condition, you know. Certainly one of my biggest learnings when it came to safety was being involved in an accident underground where I was hit by a heavy object on my head and eventually transported to Mount Isa by the Royal Flying Doctor Service, you know, on a stretcher and with a suspected spinal injury. And, uh, you know, I was a student at the time and, you know, I was sent off by myself. Nobody came with me. So no one from site jumped on the plane with you to accompany you? No, that's right. You know, I was wow. in my early 20s wow. and uh, thinking- That had well, never happened now. Well, that- well, certainly nobody that has worked for me has ever gone to hospital by themselves, yeah, you know, wow. and uh, and I think I think that care for people and the understanding of the vulnerability you, you're feeling at that time, do I have a broken neck? Yeah. You know, what would this mean for me? How does this work? You know, and so, and before I left site, you know, the underground superintendent came to me and said, oh, look, if you're not hurt, can you come back to work on the next plane on Monday so we don't have a lost time injury? Are you serious? So you're lying on the stretcher about to be loaded onto the flying doctor service and he hits you up to get back to work as soon as you can. That's right. And wow. I guess, you know, and then when I got back to work with, uh, you know, I only had, thankfully I had soft tissue damage and it took a year to get better, but that was, you know, not a permanent injury. When I did get back to site, I was made to sign the investigation form, which blamed me for standing in the wrong place, not for the supports that failed allowing the cable to fall. And so... Were you standing in the wrong place? No, I was standing next to a phone. I must say, I don't stand under anything now when I go underground, but, and maybe, you know, that's what the expectation was. But um, I was standing next to a phone to call the maintenance crew and, uh, you know, some other people came through doing some work on the cables and the cable attachments failed. So it was a mechanical failure that caused the cable to fall. So I guess, you know, what did I take away from that? Well, care for people who are injured and worry about the reporting and everything else after you've cared for them and reassure them that uh, we're going to look after you and we're not going to leave you alone in Mount Isa on a Saturday night in the hospital. Wondering if you've got a broken neck. Yes. Uh, We're going to investigate thoroughly incidents and we're going to seek the root causes, you know, because, you know, not only did I lose respect for 
the system. But, you know, you think, well, how am I as a worker going to be dedicated to safety and eliminating hazards when, you know, it's clear that management and um, the supervisory team aren't supporting that, you know. So I think that that's really important when you're setting a safety culture is to be really showing people that the root cause is identified and, you know, you need to raise hazards and we will deal with them because then you're you're embracing and capturing um, the thoughts of everybody and the eyes of everybody in, on site to improve safety. So you are a young lady, a student still. You I'm had this student. horrendous accident on site where a 50 kilo weight hits you in the head. You go to hospital alone. You're hit up on the way to hospital to get back to work as quickly as possible so I can make sure my KPI of lost time injuries is okay. Then you're asked to sign something that puts the blame on you and the root cause is not identified. It's just the part, the buck is passed to you. Is there any thought in your mind here, and you're one of the few women on site and maybe one of the few women to ever have worked underground in Queensland or New South Wales, is there any thought at this point that maybe this is not the industry for me? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting you ask that because at the time it never occurred to me, maybe I'm a bit bit slow off the mark, but you know, I think some of that was that at the time, you know, a lot of workplaces were like this Mm -hmm. and I'd taken a gap year, I'd had several jobs. I wasn't treated particularly well in those jobs. I wasn't I wasn't inspired by management in those jobs, and I really felt that going to university gave me the edge on being able to choose work and choose an employer. And so that was really what I was focused on. And I, so my belief was it would end up leaving me in a better situation through persevering through university, and it did. You know, oh it wasn't a bad strategy. <laughs> so you, th- you, but in a way, you thought that's just the working world. Yes. Wow. It was not so much just the mining industry. That's that's what it's like to have a job. Now, was it that incident or another incident that led you to leave a job at some point? Oh uh, yes. Yeah, so I, there was another job once. Once I graduated, I worked for an underground mining contractor, which was a wonderful company to work for, and they gave me lots of opportunities. You know, I I led one of their sites. For a while, within a year of leaving university, you know, and I, I got lots of, you know, it was a bit of a baptism of fire. So but you were in charge, you're a mining manager in charge of 40 people that you graduated yes, from Yes, it was insane. That is a baptism of fire. I had no idea, you know, about <laughs> anything, but yeah. I learned a huge amount about people, about behaviour, about looking past what people say and looking to their intent. And that has served me very well for the rest of my career. And then I moved on to another site where I was getting underground experience and, you know, I was working with another engineer. There was We used to have um, three engineers and we would do all of the long hole blasting. So it was really fantastic experience for young engineers. And so we were loading explosive into holes underground and I was at the back end of the machine on the ground operating the Amphotap to load explosive and my counterpart was in the basket up off the ground, loading holes on the hose. And this foreman had said, you need to go and do this job. And we said, we won't finish before the end of shift. And he said, you know, it's not a holiday camp with a few expletives. Uh, You better go down and do the work. So we did, but then they fired at the end of shift and there was a connection into the stope and we had, you know, rocks falling. I was hiding under one end of the machine with the rocks falling off the off the roof. Right, and literally feeling, fearing for your life? Yeah. Wow. And then, 
you know, the guy who was in the basket, he sort of wrapped he sort of wrapped his arms around the explosive cord and sort of cowered in the back of the basket as there were rocks falling out of the stope in front of us. And it was actually strictly within the rules to do that, but it didn't take a genius to realise it was actually a very bad situation to have put us in. And the oncoming shift boss didn't know we were there. And so I was really outraged by this situation. And so, you know, I sought this um, foreman out when we got back to camp and, you know, said to him this was a really unsafe situation that so you left us he, in. He'd gone back to camp for beers. Oh, yeah, he was, he was having yep, a beer. Yep. And, uh, and so I sort of put the word out, I'm looking for him, and which was, you know, maybe a bit cheeky. He may have seen from his perspective, he's this, you know, young graduate. But, uh, you know, to me, I guess safety's always been something that – I'm not going to get upset at you for much else, really. <laughs> but you know, if you if you put, put someone's life yeah, in danger, yeah, absolutely. It just is the wrong thing to do in uh, a very fundamental way. And he just said to me, "Well, you'll be a truck driver from now on." And I thought, so he was kind of demoting you for for being outraged by your life yeah, being in danger. Absolutely, fair absolutely. enough. Goodness me. And so I thought, well, this is no longer the place for me. Yeah. And I saw a really great paper delivered at a conference. And I thought, oh, I want to go and work at that mine. Yeah, and so uh, so that's what I did. Moved along. <laughs> now, that, that's the sort of story that makes me intrigued by underground because that's that's what I'm imagining the risks. Right. You know, being there and, and massive rocks tumbling on top of you and cowering in, in some kind of little cave. Awful, yeah. awful experience. And yet you stuck around, well, you stayed guess, in the industry. Yes, and I guess I went to, you know, I, I went to a workplace that I could see would be safer and so that was really the start of my journey into the caving mining method, which doesn't sound safer in its uh, in its name, but it is because you know you've got there's a lot more opportunity to build a better workplace with it's you know the the life of the underground development. So how long you use it is longer, so you can afford to put better ground support in, and you can have people working in more stable environments. So, you know, think about it like your street in your neighbourhood. You know, you know the streets really well, they're well formed, but if you lived in a neighbourhood where the streets were changing all the time, then they're less well formed, they're just made of gravel, there's no drainage or whatever there might be. So that's a less stable, less familiar environment. So, you know, we we have in the caving world, I actually think that it is a pretty safe method and I feel very comfortable working in the caving mines. You know, we make, we do a great job of ground support. We do a lot of work on geotechnical monitoring and understanding what the rock mass is doing. Often when I speak to senior leaders like you, I'm at this point in the conversation, I start thinking about, all right, describe for us your transition from the technical skill, the thing that got you started in your career through to being a pure leader. And often people are completely disconnected from their original technical skill. But that's not the case for you, is it? You're still very heavily involved in your technical skill. In a mine called OT, I can't pronounce it, so I'm going to call it OT in Mongolia. How do you pronounce it? Ayutolgoi. Ayutolgoi. So how does that work for you? How do you balance the progression through the ranks, through the hierarchy, to your senior position, yet continue to have such a a direct hand in your technical skill. What are you developing at the moment? Are you still learning technically or are you developing your leadership or is it coming parallel? Well, I think it, well, 
you know, it'd be a sad day if you didn't continue to develop intellectually in your role. So now I understand that as a manager, you can continue to develop intellectually in terms of management skills, but it's hard to leave that engineering background because to me, that's that intellectual curiosity, you know, and so- Your original passion Absolutely. You know, what did I love? Did I really love maths? Maybe not, but I love solving problems and solving puzzles, you know, and I think that that continues, that passion continues. So you're right, I do still have quite a technical role and maybe that's the risk-averse person within me as well is knowing that I, if I anchor myself in a technical skill, that, you know, there's always a demand for that. So there's probably a bit of a deep aspect to that. A psychological yes, aspect. Yes, I'd say that so. But I'm not qualified to delve into. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank goodness. <laughs> and so... There's part of that, but I think also, like, it's incredibly interesting, the technical developments. You know, we I just went to a workshop that Rio Tinto ran on operations research, which is about optimization and simulation and how we improve productivity and we will also improve safety through these through these changes as well. So I can't help but be very interested in those things. And so to me, I think it's an important part of my job to, or any job, when I look at do I want to do this role? It's about that intellectual curiosity and meaningful work. So that's all I've ever looked for in a job. So will there ever be a time where you stay in a large organisation like Rio Tinto and start to eye off or accept roles that take you further and further away from the technical world to the point where being a leader is your technical skill and you are no longer directly connected to the engineering bit? Or will you always... Is your passion for engineering and your your curiosity so strong that that has to be part of your career? That's a really good question. And, you know, I love the leadership side of my work, but my identity is closely tied with being an engineer and um, working in that way. And the skills are scarce. You know, the mining industry's put, you know, 20-something years of training into me. And I feel like it's a shame if people have those kinds of backgrounds, if they walk away completely from that. And so I'm a bit conflicted because I, I do love those that leadership work and ultimately it would be about the opportunity. I probably wouldn't seek an opportunity like that, but if it was brought to my attention, maybe I would, you know. But I, I just, I really enjoy the engineering side of work. Maybe it wouldn't have to be underground mining. You know, it's about the problem and being able to be connected to something physical as well. And I think that's also something about the resources industry. You know, we can, we absolutely can identify with what we do. What do I do? I produce copper and gold and in Mongolia. And that mine contributes a huge amount socially to Mongolia and its development as a country. One of the other very strong themes that come through talking to you, talking about you and reading about you is is your passion for helping women, women in the mining industry. And that's probably pretty obvious why. You started it at a time when there were few women in the mining industry. It was harder for women. In fact, not long before you started, as you said, they were banned from working underground, which is amazing. It reminds me a bit of when I was in primary school and the teachers used to openly talk about the fact that the men and the women earned less money. That was just as a, you know, on the pay scale. And I know that's still the reality in the real world, but geez, back in those days, it was still the, you know, it was just okay to discriminate. So there's, there's no mystery as to why that's become a passion for you. Uh, you were, you spent amongst many other things and you're enormously energetic, by the way, uh, as reading a few things about you, you're on a, you're the chair or on a bunch of committees. Amongst all of that, you were the chair of the Winmark committee, the Women in Mining and Resources in Queensland back in 
08 and 09. What is it about women and mining that you're so passionate about? Why is it so important that we get more women in mining? Why can't it just be a bloke's industry? Yeah, that's another great question, you know, and I have asked myself, well, why am I doing this? And, you know, I think from my own perspective, you know, the rate of change has been too slow. And, you know, ultimately we haven't reached a tipping point. And why is that tipping point important? Because I think women contribute incredibly to a workplace through providing a slightly different perspective. I mean, there's a spectrum of behaviour across both sexes. But I think, you know, the the workplaces that I've worked in that have 20% or more women were safer and more productive and more open workplaces and better places to work. And as a result, I think, why shouldn't every workplace enjoy that diversity? And so, That's really been my motivating factor. I wasn't that involved for the first 10 or so years of my career because there was, I could see things were changing. But, you know, I got to 15 years in and looked in the rear view mirror and thought the pace of change is too slow. And so I got involved in Wimark and that was about providing networking opportunities. And, you know, I felt that that was good for women. They could build a network and when you, you know, a problem shared with others, you know, and... and Problem halved. Exactly. And trying to help women to find their own solutions to stay in the industry and to emotionally connect with other women so they didn't feel like the only option was to leave. You know, and I think we also suffer a bit of maybe higher levels of attrition in the females that enter the industry versus the males. And as a result, you know, everyone that goes through is precious. And so I've changed strategy now and so I'm more involved with... I'm involved in the high school that my children have been going to and they graduate 400 students a year and I'm working there with the staff to try and help them to see the resources industry and STEM careers as a desirable career for everyone but particularly the the young women that are going through the school. And then I'm involved through Rio Tinto Sponsors Women in Engineering Project at the University of Queensland and I sit on the advisory board there. So I'm able to contribute to strategy and having two teenage daughters has given me a real window into that demographic. And I also go to their functions and try to reach into my network in Rio Tinto. You know, I've worked in Rio Tinto for a long time now. And one of the things I can contribute is that knowledge of other people. What other women engineers are there? What other young men engineers are there that can come and talk to students who will help inspire them to see that, men and women can do this career and it looks pretty attractive. You know, so that's part of developing a strategy to try and encourage more women in. And then I also am a a keen participator in the WIMARC and uh, QRC mentoring program. And why am I doing that? Well, you know, I've asked to mentor young women who work at site. I don't really want to mentor women who are in the city because when I was at site and particularly the FIFO roles in my early career, I would have loved to have somebody to talk to about everything, you know, everything from but how, how should I be leading people yeah. and how, sh- how should I be, you know, what should I be looking for next, you know, what some potential next career steps, you know, and so I really enjoy being able to engage with those young women and see more in them than they can currently see in themselves, you know, and say, hey, you know, you could be doing this next or you could be doing that next, you know, and and hopefully they take something from that and I take something from that relationship with them as well. 
Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. You talked a lot about what's important, why it's important to have women in the mining industry and that it's a, a fantastic career, it's a wonderful industry, not just for not just for anybody, but for women in particular. But I think that the injection of more women in the mining industry has saved it from itself. Back in episode 57, I had Jenny Purdy on the show, who of course is the uh, CEO of Adani Renewables now, but she she had a career much like your own. She started as an engineer in the resources and mining industry. And she described the beginning of her career where it's as if the mining industry was festering in the misguided juices of masculinity, you know, the naked pictures on walls. And and you can imagine that the sum of the whole was much worse than its parts. They would get together on site and, as I say, fester in the juices of misguided masculinity. And if it had continued down that path, it, it would have been or continued to be a really ugly industry. So just having women on site saved them from that. And it has forced them to civilize the industry to a certain extent. And I imagine that goes well beyond the tea room. It's not just about getting rid of the nerdy pitches. It's about opening people's minds to the possibilities of being more efficient and effective and being more safety conscious as well. And I imagine the injection of women in the industry has opened up a whole bunch of opportunities that are probably pretty hard to measure and intangible to a certain extent. I also spoke to um, someone called Fabian Datner in in episode number 49, and I'm not remembering this. I have had to look this up while you've been talking. Fabian, who I really enjoyed speaking to, describes herself as a leadership activist. And she thinks that we shouldn't just be evening up the number of women and male leaders in the world, that women should actually take over because men are ruining the world. And she draws on statistics or research to say that women are better than men in four ways. And this is what we need. Women are, pre- are more predisposed to collaboration. Apparently, that's a scientific fact. Women are bought by nature more inclusive, and I guess those two go hand in hand. Women have a more attuned legacy mindset. And finally, they can be better trusted with public or common assets. So if for no other reason than those and that cultural stuff that you talked about, what you're doing with all of your work around evening the gender gap in the mining industry is worthwhile. But it's come a long way, hasn't it? Are you happy with where it is now? If if it was is it do you feel like it's time to take the foot off the pedal in terms of pushing for equality in the mining industry, or are you not happy with where it is yet? So this sort of two answers, I think. One is, am I happy with the general approach and uh, thoughts about women in the industry now? Largely, yes. You know, I think I think if I reflect at work, there's more tolerance of, you know, being flexible with work. Maternity leave isn't seen now as the disaster it once was. You know, I think there's a lot of awareness of pay equality, you know, and things like that. So in some ways, yes, that's pretty good. But the problem is that if we take our foot off the pedal, we haven't reached the tipping point. I really Could think- slide back so yes, easily. Yes, I really think we need to be making sure there's probably at least 25% women in across the board and I'm including trades here, you know, and I know trades roles, I think, you know, they might just be the last bastion because it is tough. It's tough physical work sometimes and, you know, trying to paint the picture for young women who might be heading for those kinds of roles that this is okay and you need to try and 
cope with some of the tough work, but also it's an opportunity to improve work because if a woman can't do it, let's change the way we do the work, you know, because you can bet there'll be a guy who's having trouble too. So I think, which of course is one of the things women do bring to the workplace as well, is that, you know, just because a woman can't, it used to be, first it used to be, there's too much swearing for women to come along to the workplace and then it used to be as if that was out of their control I know (laughs) and then as if a woman had never heard of swear word Um, and uh, also then it was you know the work's too physically difficult and to some degree that may have been true but where it is we should be really looking at work practices to make the workplace better for everybody you know and, and now it's women aren't interested well maybe they're just not interested because they can't see themselves there and they haven't had a role model to show them well actually that's kind of interesting work and you know, I think in general it's a great workplace, but I, I would agree with what you were saying with the culture and how, you know, that culture when I first entered the industry, which I might add secretly perhaps drew me in, was that culture of you're one of us, you know. Camaraderie. Camaraderie drew me in, but the risk of a monoculture is that, you know, that risk normalisation, not only risk normalisation but acceptance and encouragement of risk, you yeah. know, that is really bad when it comes to safety and ultimately productivity as well. So, you know, absolutely breaking the cartel on that culture has been really important and I think we've gone a long way towards that. But we just don't have enough yet to take the foot off the pedal in terms of changing the way, you know, young women see their career options. You know, even if you don't have a mother who's an engineer, would you consider, if you're a young woman, would you consider engineering? And when you can go to... You know, every young woman in a physics class in year 12 and ask them that question and then say, yes, I'll be happy. (laughs) That's great. All right. Now, the last theme that I want to talk about that comes very strongly through, as I say, you know, the conversations I have about you and what I've read is the mentoring thing. And I know even just last night you were at the launch of the 2018 Wimmark Mentoring Program. Tell us about why mentoring is so important, about your path and your experience with mentors on both sides of the conversation. And also, what does it take to be a good mentor? I'm sure, like so much else, it's a skill and some people are better at it than others. Yes, and I think you'd have to ask the um, young ladies I've had the pleasure of mentoring whether I was actually a good mentor (laughs) or not. But I I have a go. I think, um, you know, for me, I had some good mentors early in my career, you know, and I think I mentioned before, you know, the opportunity to see more in someone than they see in themselves. And I certainly had a leader early in my career who was like that. And he had the ability to tell me what it was he saw in me. And that was just a wonderful gift for him to have and a wonderful gift for me to receive, you know. So I certainly feel like if I can provide that to some young women in the industry, then that's great. And, you know, I did. I mentioned, you know, when I was working in fly in fly out roles, it was a terribly lonely time. You know, I worked on a site with four hundred people once, and uh, you know, I was the only woman not in the catering workforce. And uh, you know, I would go. I worked a month at a time. You know, so four weeks on, twelve hour shifts. I would go that whole four weeks without having a professional conversation with any other woman. And uh, you know, that was you know, in the days where there wasn't really an internet and we had to queue for the phones, public phones outside, and there were three phones for 400 people. So there wasn't really much outside help either. And so, you know, I really would have 
appreciated having a relationship with somebody where I could frankly talk to them, someone who didn't work in the same company that I worked in, someone who I could ask not just about career advice, but to even ask about how do you manage a family? How does, what does that look like for you? What about maternity leave? Do you think that's a big deal? Or, you know, just all of those things uh, that, you know, I've been fortunate enough to sort of experience to be able to say, yes, you should think about that or you no, you shouldn't think about that. I had one young woman working in a coal mine who was being pressured by a, a supervisor to sign off on ground support drawings and she hadn't had the training, the appropriate training for that. And, you know, we talked about how to constructively manage that to say, look, there is a very significant personal exposure for you here. If you're signing off, you're an engineer and or you're acting as an engineer and you're signing off on ground support plans. If something goes wrong, mark my words, you'll be sitting in front of the coroner. I've had to do that myself. It is not a nice place to be. Therefore, you need to be able to ask respectfully for training to make sure you're qualified to do that. And this is really important. And so she had reservations about that, but being able to give validity to those reservations and provide her with a pathway to resolving them is something I couldn't have done for myself at that age, but I certainly can help with now. You know, so those kinds of conversations are gold. You realise, you know, you're able to perhaps help someone from making the mistakes or that you've made or you've seen others make in in your career as well. And plus, you know, they're so enthusiastic and keen and they're working in dynamic working environments and, um, you know, they're just wonderful to talk to and learn about themselves as well. You know, I take something away from those relationships and always feel like, oh, I need to be better in this way or I'd like to be better in that way as well at the end of those conversations. So, you know, I think there's a lot for to take out of being a mentor. You know, I don't know what it takes to be a good mentor you know, maybe a bit of experience is key. I think maybe, you know, something you were saying to me before is being interested in the other person. Like I really am interested in what they've got to say and what their thoughts are as well. The currency of mentor relationships is very strong in our professional world now. It seems like we have a very high understanding of of its value. And I know that for Wimmark, uh, going through its mentoring program, you have to go through an interviewing process so you can select just a few of them because for all the applicants, you couldn't take all the applicants that you get. So understanding is very strong. What is it that when you think of a program like that, where it's it's an application process, they kind of pair you up like a dating website, as opposed to some of the more organic mentoring relationships that you that you have had through your career. I'm assuming there's a role for both and that the very structured type one that we're talking about is better than none. But as I say, just comparing those two types of mentoring relationships that you might have. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you've got a structured program like Wimark, I think that's really valuable because, you know, it means that the mentees have put the hand up, hey, I'd like to develop a relationship with someone else. And but I don't men- know where to start. That's right. Mm. And some, you know, some of the women I've mentored, they might be the only woman working in their workplace. Mm. So they, they don't have the opportunity to develop relationships with other women and they may develop mentoring relationships with men in the way you're talking about, but that is a complete matter of chance mm. as to whether you get the two, the right two people to meet together, you know. So I absolutely think that there's a role for 
that organic mentoring, you know, and it's really important and we should continue to try to behave that way in workplaces. But those structured programs add a lot. And, you know, I'd go further and say from a company perspective, those young women that I've mentored, we talk about the company perspective on issues and, you know, I bring that I manage people perspective. Like, and I'm pretty sure those people are easier to manage at the end of the program for those companies. It doesn't mean they are, you know, they're not surrendering anything to the organisation, but they can have a better conversation with their leaders about any issues or concerns or opportunities. And I can also sort of put that corporate light on the issues they're raising, you know. So so I actually think there's a huge benefit for organisations in this as well that's probably largely unrecognised. And I'm, I'm imagining, and I, I think I've seen it happen, where these structured mentoring programs, although they're not organic relationships that, that form naturally, they almost spark in the mentors and the mentees the, the mindset of being a mentor and a mentee. So you would recruit people that you know and value to be a mentor in your program, and they might not have thought of themselves as a mentor before. But once they've gone through this structured experience, it's almost like a switch has been turned on in their mind, and they might start to have organic relationships with others and and be that powerful mentor role, as well as being part of these structured programs. So that, I guess, is one of the benefits of them as well. Absolutely. And I think you, you tend to start having those conversations more naturally with people. And I've certainly found, you know, maybe I reached my own tipping point in age, you know, where suddenly people start who you feel like they're colleagues, but they're probably 10 years younger than you. And, you know, they might have, there are young women now who I worked with, you know, 10 years ago when my children were young, who now have their own children, who will say, oh, can we grab lunch together? You know, and and I recognise that that's exactly what's happening, you know, and I've got all the time in the world for them. You know, I've worked with them as young professionals and very much saw them as equals, you know, at the time. But their perception of that relationship has changed with seeing that I have different experience now, you know, and that they're, you know, we've all followed our life journey, I guess, and I'm at a different point. Speaking of which, that's actually how I want to wrap up. One of the things, I mean, you would have all sorts of questions from mentors and and you would have all sorts of conversations with other people in your industry about career progression and ideas and technical skills. But one of the really strong themes that I know comes in the mentor-mentee relationship with women in mining is about juggling career and family, having babies, taking time off, when to take that role or not take that role. How did you do it? You have had this really healthy, energetic, productive career through the mining industry. You have two teenage girls, I think, two growing girls, young women, and you've been married that most of that time. You've lived abroad. You travel a lot even now. You've done FIFO, which is another intriguing whole lifestyle that we could spend a whole podcast on. How have you juggled all of that? What, what are the mistakes that you've made, the lessons that you've learned, and the things that you share with other people? Yes, you know, and I think well, the first thing to do is, you know, in any part of your life, if something isn't working, change it. I think is the first well, that would be the first thing I'd say is if something didn't work for once, particularly once I met my husband. So I met my husband probably within eighteen months of leaving university. You know, so we've been together and we, we've actually been married twenty years this year. Oh, congratulations! Um, thank you. And so quite I, the achievement. <laughs> yes, it is, and I, I feel like. 
you know, marry the right person is probably a good start. first <laughs> thing, you know. And I don't know that I would have had children if I hadn't married somebody that I could see myself having a family with and who would be an equal partner in life. And so, you know, my husband is as, you know, as supportive as he could be and I've tried to be supportive of his career as well. But he's definitely taken one for the team more often than I have, I think, you know, I'd say. So that's a great start. I think, you know, being clear on what your priorities are, like work's important, but, you know, I saw a lot of, I worked with a lot of men when I, uh, early in my career, when I was doing fly in, fly out work, who were on their second marriages or they were going through divorces. And I often felt that they had a lot of regrets about what they'd done. And I always thought, you know, take a no regrets kind of approach, you know, first things first, you know, if something's not working, change it. And, you know, go in with a plan, but if that's not working, something has to change, you know, and I and I think that, you know, my husband and I have always talked actively about whatever's going on in our lives and with our children, if there's an issue, okay, how are we going to deal with this? And, you know, ultimately I, I feel like my husband makes me want to be a better person. You know, he's a great guy and I think we both still feel very lucky to be married to one another and, you know, when you feel like that, you're prepared to make compromises. I think also I've not been focused on climbing the corporate ladder. You know, I, I really have always been interested in uh, the work. How meaningful is the work? How engaging is the work? Who am I working with? You know, am I working with people I can learn from? Am I working with people I can develop? You know, and that helps as well because then you're working often with people who are of a similar mindset. So if there's issues at home, they're supportive of deal with your issues at home, you know, and and the workplace is much more like that now. You know, I think we've I've worked part-time a little. My husband's worked part-time a little. He's taken time off work, you know, so just trying to be flexible and do what's right for the family has been really important. And also recognising that, you know, as a mother, I think you tend to think if there's an issue with your kids or going on for your kids, you know, you're responsible for that. And I guess you always have to think about what's your part? What part have I played in this? But also that they're their own person and, and they're on their own journey as well. And trying to make the most of every moment you have with them. I think when you're a working parent, you're absolutely focused on good quality time with partners, with other people and trying to really be in that moment with them and for them to know they've got a line to you. If there's an issue, pick up the phone, I'm there. And it has been hard at times. You know, I have been overseas and there's been things happen and floods and you've got, you know, a child on the end of the phone saying, oh, I can't get home. What do I do? You know, and you think, gosh, I wish I was there. Then you just have to think, okay, how can I make a difference? Are you standing undercover? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know. So you say, I'm not there, but what can I do what from here? What can I do? Yeah. What can I do to try and help? So I don't think there's a magic solution, but I do think if a parent is happy, whether it's a father or a mother, and that happiness comes partly from working, you're probably a better parent if you feel happy within yourself, you know. So I don't think there's anything wrong with being a working parent. Is it a challenge? Yes. But you know, if something's not working, try to change it. You know, and I, I think marry the right person, first thing to do. <laughs> and I imagine through everything that you've just described, there are these little periods of conundrum and decisions to be made as the kids grow up and relationships develop and you're deciding when to have another kid if or if not or which role to take. And it's really important that you've got someone that you can talk it through, someone yes. who has been there or is knows something about it because they're part of the same industry or they've, they're have they a few years ahead with their family. Just being able to have 
those conversations is really valuable. Yeah, just being able to talk through things and also talking to your own partner about those things as well. Look, here's the trade-off, you know, and I think, you know, as you go through seniority levels, I've always been really clear about here's the trade-off. I get to do this, but I'll have to be away more. What do you think about that? How's that going to impact the family? And then both signing on to that, you know, I mean, it's it's classic management 101 really, isn't it? But, you know, it's that is everyone signing on to what the expectations are going to be? Okay, all right, well, we're going to hit set forth on this this plan and see what happens. And if it, we diverge from, you know, our nirvana, well, we better, we better work out what we're going to do to get back on track. You know, so I think that's important. All right, very last question. Where is it all headed for Joe Dudley? What's, you've had a long and rich career so far, but it's far from finished yet. Where is it all headed? Well, you know, I've been off mine sites for 13 years now. And so I've been thinking recently, I need to lean back in towards the fire and get back to a site role. So I'd like to look for something like that in the next couple of years. And, you know, it'll be tough because I've got a child in high school and, you know, but, you know, again, it's that, okay, let's try and get everyone on board. Let's go forth on this journey and we'll change it if we need to. And then I guess, everybody's talking about the gig economy now and flexible workforces and things like that. So, you know, if I was to come back and there wasn't a role in in Rio Tinto that I felt that I could, you know, make a a significant contribution in, you know, I could look at becoming part of that economy and, and, and really looking for the intellectually valuable work, you know, where, you know, you can go and look at problems or issues and help to solve them. You know, I think one of the things about being in a central role for me in the past, I've worked in like central technical roles and it's fun to go and see new problems and new issues, but I miss really helping people to solve them. And so I think I'd like to continue helping people to solve issues, you know, and, I, and I'm not really worried about at what level that is, you know, so it's more about the work, the collaboration, you know, the, um, and the enjoyment of the problem. So... Well, whether it's on a mine side or as part of that gig economy, selling your intellect by the hour... I have no doubt that whatever you choose to do will be fantastic for the rest of your career. Joanne Dudley, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. And that was Joanne Dudley. I really enjoyed her enthusiasm and the affection she has for her industry. She had so many experiences early in her career that may have turned many of us away, but she ploughed on sometimes, as she described, through pure naivety. But the result has been a rich and fruitful career for her, her family, and those she's worked with and mentored. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Joanne on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Thank you.